0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Angela Van Halen, Professor of Art History and Communications at McGill University in Montreal, to talk about her new book, The Moving Statues of 17th Century Amsterdam, Automata, Waxworks, Fountains, Labyrinths, out 2022 with Penn State University Press. Hello, Angela, and how are you today? Hi, I'm good. A nice winter afternoon in, in our morning in Montreal?
1: <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wonderful. So thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. Um, I really enjoyed the book. It was completely educational. I had no idea these things even existed. Um, and now I'm, I'm so excited. And as it turns out, I've seen a few. So that's really cool. Uh, so it's, I'm really excited to get into it. Good. Okay, so your book opens with the line, the moving statues of 17th century Amsterdam is a study of idiosyncratic attractions called Dolhoven or labyrinths, which were unique to early modern Amsterdam. Um, And I rarely have to ask this sort of question, but I think it's appropriate here. So what are these? What are Dolhoven?
1: Yeah, so they seem to be something that uh, a group of people in Amsterdam sort of made up. So they started to use inns or taverns, so public spaces, public houses, to display really different kind of innovative artworks. Um, And partly, I think it was because the Calvinist church was fairly repressive in in this time period, especially about images and especially about images that seemed almost lifelike, like automata as a moving statue or waxworks look like they're actual people right so uh so to kind of avoid some of the repressive um tactics of the church you could use your own business to to display um these kinds of artworks and so i think it was that kind of strategy that prompted this and maybe that's why this happened only in amsterdam in these in these particular especially in the early decades of the 17th century so um a dolhof literally means like a labyrinth. Uh, so they actually did have hedges, hedge labyrinths within them. So they're almost like little amusement parks that people began to construct in their inns and in the courtyards of their inns.
0: So I walk into a place, I get a drink, yep. hang out, go through this labyrinth. <laughs> and this is all still in Amsterdam, a city with not a lot of space. That's right. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, that's true. So yeah, they seem to like sometimes the inns had adjoining courtyards. And then what I found is if they were successful, they might be able to buy like a neighboring property and expand those Mm -hmm. gardens. So there was one that had like two labyrinths, like Mm -hmm. a round one and a square one. Um, So I think it was a kind of early instance of amusement parks. And there were these kind of labyrinths in like elite pleasure palaces and villas uh mm-hmm. so of the upper classes so it was a kind of well-known form of pleasure and entertainment for the elite but to make it into a kind of popular attraction mm-hmm. that was like a really new idea so they used what little space they had i guess to um to develop this that's so
0: interesting. Yeah, I've been to contemporary mazes in North Italy, right? And, but,
1: but the idea but in the city so small. That's right. There are a lot of Italian ones where um, and some of them still exist, like in Northern Italy, where you can um, still kind of walk through these, walk through yeah. these. And there were quite a few in France and Flanders as well. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you come to write this book? How did you learn about this? And what struck you? When did you decide you needed to write a book about this?
1: Yeah, it's like a long process, because it was hard to figure them out. Like there wasn't a lot published about them. Almost none of the actual artworks survive. So none of the there were a lot of wax statues, and none of those survive. Mm -hmm. Um, There were a lot of automata, different types of moving mechanical statues. And there's like two that are now in the Amsterdam Museum, the historical Mm -hmm. museum in the middle of Amsterdam of David and Goliath. So I did see those when I was a kid. Like one Mm -hmm. of my aunts took us to the museum, to the cafe, because these statues used to just be in the cafe. So they weren't displayed really as historical artifacts, but more as kind of quirky um, holdovers, uh, something like for kids to... To enjoy. So they weren't taken all that seriously. So I guess I first saw it when I was a kid and I was quite struck by them, but they weren't moving at that time. They've since been restored and they actually move now. Um, and then I think when I was doing my my thesis research as a PhD student, I came across some men because I was working on popular culture, I came across some mentions of these mm-hmm of these inns and the displays and their little guidebooks that have some pictures. And so I saw that. But for for me as a student, it was just like way too much to try to take that to take that on. <laughs> uh, and so I just I guess I returned to it later after I'd worked on several other kind of projects. It was always there in the back of my head as a kind of puzzle to to figure out. So um, oh. So I came back to it, you know, at a later point. It's. I can see how they struck with you, because it's cool.
0: Um, so there is very little that's been done about them. But in general, how have they been treated in scholarship and really in memory? Like, what's kind of the prevailing opinion of these things?
1: Yeah, I guess what happened is, in scholarship, it was really archivists, like people working in the Amsterdam archives, who could see that there was actually quite a lot of publicity material there were little pamphlets that were published there were some posters um also travelers to amsterdam like quite you know, well-known writers like Mm -hmm. John Evelyn um, wrote about going to these sites. And there are quite a few people who wrote about going to these sites. So they were part of like a kind of tourist itinerary. If you were a well-educated upper-class man visiting Amsterdam, you would go to see these things. Um, So there was a lot of publicity, but the archivists... um, because these sites, they lasted, they start in the 17th century, but they actually last until sort of late into the 19th century. So they're still kind of in memory thought of as being mostly for kids, because what was innovative in the 17th century was not innovative in the 19th, early 20th century. So it sort of shows us, I guess, a bit how technology changes and um, interests change and innovation falls into like obsolescence like you know your old cell phone or whatever <laughs> or the yeah. machine or so these things they so they were sort of that at that point denigrated as being not very sophisticated mostly for kids and mothers and um, women so women and children was kind of and that's like the worst thing you could say about any cultural form because it means it's kind of frivolous and um, not a serious intellectual um, concern, uh, and so, so there was this kind of like false narrative about these sites then as being really for women, children, lower class people, like, uh, and so a kind of form of mass culture uh, amusement for, um, for you know, I guess for the masses is kind of how they were looking at it in that. In that time period in the like late 19th, early 20th century, when people started to write about it. And so then that kind of you know, denigration of the sites, that's what kind of prevailed in the scholarship. And then because the objects themselves didn't survive, no one really took them up and did a, a kind of serious look at mm-hmm. a scholarly study or an art historical study of of um of the things and of the sites themselves. So yeah, mm-hmm. so it was kind of uh, um, forgotten, or mm-hmm. or yeah, forgotten for quite a while. As we, and also we focus so much on <clears throat> Dutch paintings because that's what's in the museums, mm-hmm. and sure. that sort of has defined, you know, the so-called golden age of of Dutch culture. Is right. yeah. but it seems to me that might be wrong that um, in the seventeenth century <laughs> there were other other things that were considered more innovative. So.
0: Well, this is the thing you point out, you know, that they're they're largely forgotten. And when they are when people do think about them, it's they're ignored or denigrated. But in fact, you argue that there's sites for the display of some of the most cutting edge technology and considerable artistic prowess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So what it turns out that really some of the best known artist Hendrik de Keyser was one of the foremost sculptors uh, in 17th century Amsterdam. So his work is there um, and there are various other artists who were quite well known in the 17th century whose art was displayed. So it wasn't like, and these are really difficult things to make, to make a kind of lifelike moving mechanical uh, statue. Um, You know, they were supposed to look almost kind of miraculous or magical to to uh mm-hmm. to the audience to really kind of impress on them the kind of powers of of these marvelous types of uh, types of things that are made by human beings but look like they're actually alive um so they really were very sophisticated um and i discovered i guess the thing that surprised me because i started out doing a study of popular culture and it ended up being very much about you know, philosophy and intellectual culture in the end, because these really were considered philosophical objects, things that you think with. Aristotle writes about automata, Descartes is very interested in automata. And so it's part of a longer philosophical tradition. Um, uh, So very interesting to well-educated, elite, upper-class people not not really just for peasants and
0: (laughs) yeah i mean they seem they seem to be really multifaceted attractions um you know they're they're not just it's not just entertainment it's not just a ploy to get more money right this is they're didactic
1: yeah 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 so they're like nobody makes culture cultural objects in the 17th century just for fun like that just didn't exist in this time period like everything is about somehow educating a public shaping a public um, transforming people the goal of the city of Amsterdam was always to have a peaceful harmonious civic society and they really needed that because they just come through Uh, the Reformation, a lot of religious divisiveness. They'd come through the Dutch Revolt, so there are a lot of political factions. Um, So they're always a little bit just on the brink of civil war in the 17th century. And so civic harmony, finding ways, cultural means to bring people together um, Mm -hmm. was really important. And so I think that's part of the aim of these sites because the people who owned the inns did tend to be from the ruling classes in Amsterdam, like the, the families that were also uh, sitting in the, city, in the city government and um, on the boards of all of the different uh, cultural institutions. So, so it's very deliberate, I think, what they're doing. They're really kind of planning this, um, trying to reach a broad public to educate people, um, a little bit like a kind of public academy or something like that, I think is what, what they had in mind. Mhm.
0: Yeah. Um your introduction concludes with a delightfully unexpected sentence. Just wonderful. Surely among the most contradictory cultural experiments experiments of early modernity, these were beer gardens for the cultivation of the Protestant self. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, but we need to unpack that. that is...
1: <laughs> yeah. I guess I started out thinking they were um, more ecumenical, that they were open to everybody and not necessarily religious. But then as I went along, I began to see that there really were some very key religious ideas mm-hmm. um, that were being conveyed to people. And there were different inns. So, especially, there's this inn called the New Dolhof, um And it was taken over by two Lutheran men who are coming from. Uh, Germany and so there you begin to see like the uh, the type of displays they had were very religious there's a lot about like Daniel in the Old Testament and this took me years to figure out what this what this uh, <laughs> what this meant but it really did seem to be about bringing the world to perfection. And they're very seem very interested in Francis Bacon, for instance, who is Mm -hmm. a philosopher working um, in England and sort of a new type of scientific approach. So um, the hope that the Protestants had was that they could re-educate the entire population, uh, convert them to Protestantism, and then They would also globally convert everybody in the world to Protestantism because that is the aim of the Reformation for them. The Reformation isn't over until the whole world has been reformed. Mm -hmm. and once that happens, then the end times will come, and Jesus will come back, and <laughs> there'll be the apocalypse. Yeah. So they had this strange apocalyptic kind of thing with these prophecies of Daniel in the Old Testament, um, and bringing the kind of earth to fulfillment, which which really took me by surprise. But so it did seem like it did have a very specific kind of Protestant um, Protestant goal that people really did believe in. In, in Amsterdam, there are studies also of, of Rembrandt that show just how common this way of thinking was. The scholars in the universities thought this that if they could convert everybody, they would complete the Reformation and then the world would come to a happy conclusion. And so, that's, so, somehow, so that was a sort of strange aspect of these sites that um, I didn't really see that one coming, but um, yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah,
0: no, I can see how that would have been a surprise. Um, so there's this idea that there are items that can affect change, right? There are things you get, there are things that can, that can alter the way the world works and those can be inanimate objects.
1: Yeah. Or, right? Yeah. 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 So that's an interesting thing, too, is, I guess, the power of of these objects, these because they're so um, striking so that, so that when you're in the audience and suddenly a statue starts to move, um, they were staged in a way that really was supposed to shock people. Um mm-hmm. To kind of as the statue moves, you're trying to move your audience and kind of um, have some sort of pretty like strong emotional uh, response, whether it's like fear or wonder or uh, surprise or amazement um, uh, at the the kind of powers of of these objects. Um, and there is a lot of art theory at the time that talks about this as being the power of art that the art can move us. It can move us emotionally it can move us physically as well. Um, And if you really want to change people, if you want to change their hearts or their way of thinking, you have to move them, you can't just have a kind of dry, Mm -hmm. rational debate, there has to be some kind of emotive, emotional engagement to change people's hearts and to change Mm -hmm. the way that they think. So that really was considered the power of these of these moving statues. Um, and that goes back all the way to Aristotle, how he writes about them. Cause Aristotle says that wonder, you know, moves us and then wonder leads to curiosity. Cause you're like, I wonder <laughs> what makes that statue move. And then curiosity le- leads to learning and to philosophy, to trying to figure out, um, some of the mechanical principles and, and things like that. So, so there's that kind of idea, um, that I think the Dutch artists uh, are really taking from antiquity and from ancient texts that talk about the power of of culture to move people, to transform them, to make them think differently. So um, so that's a powerful thing. And I guess art still does that. I mean, that's, that is the kind of power of art is <laughs> it moves us. It that's makes cool. us think about something slightly differently. Right. Um,
0: yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. maybe, and just emotes, right? So we we get something out of this. The Dutch word for that, by the way, is beveglikreis. And I just feel like we should all take a second to think about Dutch as a language. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, I would like to kind of, I would like to walk through the book, which is organized a bit like the dolhaven themselves, so yeah. let's like, well, let's, let's start at the beginning. So the first thing, who are we, these visitors? Are we wealthy? Are we poor? Are we men or women? Are we residents? Are we visitors? Who Who's going to these?
1: Yeah. So that is kind of what's interesting. And I think maybe the most novel thing, because there always were these automata displays, as I said, for elite people, for mm-hmm. uh, kings and princes and uh, people who had palaces. Um but it's this new idea of making these things accessible to the public. Um, So there was an admission fee, but it was fairly low. So anyone who could pay admission could go to uh, visit these sites. So they're a little bit like early museums. Um, And so that's interesting because they are open to everyone. So, you know, women, children, perhaps, you know, uh, urban laborers, um, there is a whole range of people Who could go. Um, But within that, what I saw in the publicity for these sites, because there are some posters and there are these booklets that they sold, they're really trying to target a specific audience. And that tends to be foreign visitors to Amsterdam, so international visitors, because Amsterdam at this moment has just become like a sudden rise to power has become the kind of global hub of world trade and so all sorts of people are coming into the city and in a way the city government wants to convince people that amsterdam is not just an economic center but it it is the cultural center Mm -hmm. there's a kind of cultural supremacy of amsterdam and so they're trying to kind of keep up to their new economic status by also um trying to impress people with uh with cultural um prowess and wonders. Uh so they're targeting that audience and they're targeting really like educated upper class men. Um uh, so there's a real mix in the audience then because those people did go. And, like I, I saw that in the mm-hmm. their travel documents and and their travel accounts. Um but that but local people could also go because it's in your neighborhood. Um, and so it's uh, it becomes this kind of mix of uh, of uh, like a really kind of open public audience, which is which is a new kind of way of of looking at art, because uh, uh, automaton wax would have been seen mostly by um, elite people uh, more than uh, mm-hmm. kind of. Public. So
0: we go in, we, we're, we, we go in, we're with friends, we're, maybe it's our neighborhood, we grab a drink yeah. um, and yeah. kind of get in a mood, and then we walk in, and your chapter two starts with the triumph of Bacchus and Ariadne. Um, which is I don't know what do we call this? Is it a fountain?
1: Is it? What tell me about it? What is this? It is a. I kind of started to call it a multimedia assemblage. <laughs>
0: yes, that works. It is a multimedia assemblage.
1: Yeah. So it's a fountain uh, that has life size sculptures, and again, it doesn't survive. So we just really mm-hmm. have a print of it. So working from that print. Uh, there were marble statues. There's Bacchus. He's riding like in a chariot. It's pulled by leopards, um, and then Ariadne is there too, and she's sort of kneeling in front of him, um, and he's holding up a, a a bunch of grapes. So Bacchus, the god of wine, it kind of presides over this site because it is a pub, and so it is a place where you go um, you go to drink. Uh, and then there are all these sort of amazing waterworks that squirt out of this fountain. And that, too, um, to us might look kind of uh, familiar, but at the, in the time period, um, that sort of hydraulic technology was really new. How to sort of force water to kind of spout out into yeah. these kind of um, upward sort of squirting streams of water. Um, that would have been a really kind of marvelous thing for people to see as well, because Amsterdam didn't have public fountains. There were public fountains like in Rome mm-hmm. and in Paris, uh, but not in Amsterdam. So um, so they're not exactly public because they're in these courtyards, but they're quasi public because you could pay your admission fee and go in and see this. So this would be the first kind of wonderful thing that really strikes you as um, putting Amsterdam on the map in terms of new artistic and technological innovations that are on display there
0: so we're we're just we're we're struck we're in awe right i mean bacchus and ariadne are amazing and here's this thing but leopards are pulling a chariot there's a fountain we've never seen this we go past that and then we go into the labyrinth right
1: right yeah. so... first you get drunk right <laughs> and then you go into a labyrinth oh, and but these... you lift the squirting the squirting oh. out of the pavement <laughs> <laughs> We are standing there looking at this statue. Um, The sources tell us that the women who are standing there would suddenly be surprised because a squirt of cold water would come up from the pavement. There's a kind of pebble pavement around the statue and it would squirt up your skirt. And so they'd be kind of wet by this um, by this thing, and they would scream and they would jump around. And so again, there's a way it moves you emotionally and physically. Like you have this kind of trigger response to being unexpectedly sprayed um, with water up your skirt. And people thought this was hilarious, of course. Um, and so you wonder why is it only the women? I was <laughs> like, the fountain can distinguish, but it's it's a kind of mechanism that is worked from a distance. So you have to imagine somebody sitting somewhere and waiting until a woman stands exactly in the right spot and then kind of, uh, you know, activating this mechanism and and dousing uh, this woman. So um, it is it is quite sexist to pick out the women in that way uh, but, for this particular kind of humiliating um, treatment. But and that Well, wouldn't be quite funny, so, funny so, as well, yeah. yeah.
0: It wouldn't be quite so exciting with a, a man in pants, but it is also, um, I mean, but there's, it's ridiculous and she's jumping around and that is hilarious, but it's also amazing, right? There's water coming out of the ground in a good way.
1: Right? Yeah, yeah. So it's a kind of complete sort of surprise and shock. And, and that seems to be the dynamic of the whole site is to catch you off guard, to surprise you, to shock you, to move you. And um, and then I guess hopefully to impress you so much that you change your
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> you, were thinking. <laughs> There's you some sort of into a receptive state. Yeah, yeah. You're about to be kind of also thrown off balance because mazes, the labyrinth is there. You get lost, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean that's it's, so. What's what's what is that evoking? Getting- I
1: think, like if you've ever been in a labyrinth, like I can remember going to one in Holland with my kids. And we thought it was going to be really fun. So you start out and you think it's going to be really fun. And we split up. You know, you know My husband had one of our kids and I had the other. And soon they were both in tears. They were scared. They were lost. We couldn't find the rest of our family. You thought you'd never get out of there. So they seem fun, but they're not fun. They're actually intensely frustrating. They're designed to outsmart you, um, to kind of make you lose your way. Um, You can't see much because there are high hedge walls all around you. Um, and you know, people often seem to dig through the hedges just to get just to get out of there.
0: People lose their minds a little. They're There's like, yeah, it's re- you feel really trapped.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then the myth of the labyrinth again. The, the these seem to be very classical sites that so mm-hmm. you have Bacchus and now you have the labyrinth, which is about Theseus and, and the minotaur. And so the minotaur is like a monster and that's what's at the heart of the labyrinth. So even getting to the middle of the labyrinth, it's not like a big prize. It's like, then you get eaten <laughs> by, by a monster. So so there's something really kind of scary about, about labyrinths and kind of sobering. So you're drunk and you're hopping around and you're laughing at people around the fountain and then you go into this labyrinth you're isolated you're singled out you're um and you're kind of terrified <laughs> and you're lost you've lost your way so so there is a kind of i think it's so it seems like it's almost like a little ritual route that they planned through these sites uh and so the labyrinth is this kind of constricting and uh sobering rite of passage uh as you um as you kind of go deeper into into the site. Okay. And then we engage with the automata. Right. So then you get to the, if you solve this labyrinth, a door kind of opens at the end, and then you go into an actual building, because automata, you know, they would rest if they were outside. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a special outbuilding, a sculpture gallery. And so you would go in there, and it seemed to be a, been rows of seating where you'd... Um, where you'd then sit down. So you're no longer moving, you're sitting down. And then there was a stage at the front. So a bit like a theater really. Um, And then these moving statues, there was a curtain. So the curtain was closed. And then at set times, the posters seem to show us that there are certain times when these shows would start, there was music. So there's trumpets. And then the curtains would, would open. And then there was a whole kind of show, I think with a, probably a presenter, Who presented each work and um you know and then the work would start to move um these uh these moving mechanical statues so again there's again like you kind of you're sobered you come into this dark interior there's a kind of anticipation and then you uh really are hit with these these wondrous moving uh statues so it's all about kind of heightening the experience, the physical experience, the emotional experience of these works of art.
0: I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the people in public squares in Europe, I think maybe happens back in North America as well, although I don't know where they're dressed in, you know, all gold or something and they stand perfectly still until (laughs) someone drops money. And then they jump and everybody screams and runs around and you know, it's coming, you know, you, we know what they do, but it doesn't <laughs> matter. It still makes us jump and scream. And it's very like, all the, it's it's this moment where you really take in your surroundings. You can remember this really well. And I'm kind of thinking of that thing with these automata. Everybody knows what they do, right? But when they move, it's still astounding.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. We have those in old Montreal here. <laughs> so, yeah. And it's the same, I guess it is similar. Like, it's kind of terrifying. Like, I hate those. Like, I, I mm-hmm. if I see one, I go out of my way to um avoid it and you know kids hate them because they're scary <laughs> yeah,
0: But also some kids are drawn to them and so they like <laughs> drop their quarter and then scream and run yeah yeah, yeah.
1: so there's um, a kind yeah. of fear and pleasure uh, but I guess it's about a heightened heightened emotional and physical response uh, that's yeah. that's very staged but it still kind of works yeah but
0: it's still really effective and it feels like this so tell me about these uh, what are the what are they what are we finding we're inside what's the show gonna what are we gonna see
1: Yeah, there are different types. There are some that were, like, pretty complicated, where there'd be, like, even a little Bible story. So there's, like, these small, uh, almost like a mini stage set, and then different figures would come out. So there's King Solomon and he's sitting on a throne and then the queen of Sheba comes in. So you imagine she kind of rolls in creek. Creak, and then Solomon stands up and he moves his arm, moves his scepter up and down to welcome her. And then he, she bows. And so she hinges at the waist and then she's got a retinue of other people who come in. And so you, I, I imagine the presenter is maybe telling you the Bible story mm-hmm. as these, um, these, and these are kind of smaller figures. They're not life-size. They're maybe um, half-life-size figures. And they're all dressed in these, you know, sumptuous costumes, which is also part of the the interest of looking at mm-hmm. them. Um, and there was music that accompanied it. So it's kind of like a little theater performance, but acted out by um, these little mechanical figures. So part of the wonder is just trying to figure out how it is they're moving. I guess... Here in Montreal, we have a store called Ogilvy's that mm-hmm. always has a Christmas display with little yeah. teddy bears. <laughs> and they're like, and they move around. Right. The elves are pounding out. Their, their eyes click back and forth. Yeah. And so it's that type of. It's that type of attraction, uh, which is still, you know, fun to see. It's <laughs> it's fun to see,
0: but there is, the you know,
1: is there in costumes and yeah,
0: yeah. Um, but there, there is something because if we wanted to tell a biblical story, we could also use people.
1: Yeah, but we're instead we're using these
0: machines. So there's something kind of, there's still a, a, an, an excitement about this about the science of it about the engineering as well yeah
1: yeah yeah so it's a sort of funny combination where they seem to often pick familiar stories like either biblical or classical so you assume that the audience most people would know the story already but then the novelty is the um is the, the new technology and the mechanical figures being using those to act out these, act out these stories. Um, yeah. So they are that type and then there were life-size automata. So the David and Goliath mm-hmm. um, that survive are those type um, where, and so these would be human sized figures again, dressed usually in kind of um foreign costumes or historical costumes and some of them would play music Um, there was there was a figure who played the bagpipes and so his fingers actually moved and his eyes moved uh, um, and 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 he played like familiar tunes somehow on these bagpipes and so again it's this kind of wonder of being struck by the strangeness of it and not knowing how it works trying to sort of figure out how, how it actually actually works. And I don't think that that part was explained, the mechanisms. I don't think they ever revealed like the inner workings of these machines to the audience. Cause you had to kind of keep people coming back. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> Sure.
0: Um, yeah, it's, I'm I'm, try- I'm just trying to imagine this whole experience. So we have these big automata, we also have a lot of wax figures. What do they do? What are we supposed to learn about our wax figures from our wax figures?
1: Yeah, wax figures also are very creepy. Like if you think of <laughs> Madame Tussaud or something like that. And they have a long, long history as well. Um, and so a lot of these things, fountains, automata, wax, it seems like the artists were thinking about Classical antiquity and and trying to revive mm-hmm. some of these ancient art forms, and so wax works. Um, we know they appeared in like ancient Roman culture that people had busts of their ancestors cast in wax. Sometimes you would actually take a um, you know an actual cast from someone's deceased face so these death mask kind of mm-hmm. things you can kind of picture those um, so there was a long tradition of of wax works and again it's something that because wax is so brittle and friable um, it, they not many of them survive and so there haven't been a lot of really serious studies mm-hmm. of wax works again because the actual you know 17th century wax works um, none of none of them. Uh, survive into the present and so often for art historians that kind of disqualify if you don't have the actual object to work with um, then that kind of disqualifies it so so waxworks too they kind of what they seem to do is they keep the memory of somebody alive but in a very kind of material way so that the actual living presence of that person where you can see their face even after they're gone and often it's too they're dressed in in costumes that represent who they were um, it keeps the dead alive in a strange way because uh, mm-hmm. I think we would have photographs mm-hmm. of these people of someone in your family you know you would have a photograph to remember what they look like because um, that is important to us and so Waxworks played that that role in, uh, in ancient societies. And then it's, it's also sort of being carried through in the 17th century, which is, which is interesting. So, and a lot of these waxworks were of, um, they were of different European rulers. So like Henry IV of France, uh, King Gustav Adolphus of Sweden, uh, and then and then the Dutch uh, stadtholders, so uh, William of Orange and his descendants, and and the British royal family as well. So it's showing us a political alliance between Protestant uh, European rulers, and so I think that was part of the kind of political and religious um, aim of these sites was to show the audience: here is Europe. We have a strong alliance between these um, ruling class people. Even if they die, <laughs> they, they have heirs. And, mm-hmm. uh, and again, it's that thing of the work of the Reformation being ongoing. And so the military part of it, the war that's mm-hmm. going on, that the Dutch are engaged in with Sweden and France and England, um, that's part of... Their larger goal of reforming the entire world, uh, turning the whole world into, a, you know, Protestant to Protestant, converting the whole world to Protestantism. So, so it, it kind of brings those leaders, those military leaders, to life, um, and there, the change is probably to make people um, want to sign up and fight for this mm-hmm. cause, um, sure,
0: and see the reason for it as well, because it's it's constant and it's expensive and it's uh, inconvenient as well as everything else, right? Even if you're not going to go fight someone, you know, is it's the constant war is, is upsetting
1: to the whole kind of social order. So getting behind the laws. Yeah. Yeah. And so how do you get people to, to, to get on board, to sign up, to risk their lives? Um, Partly this kind of idea that if you're a hero, even if you die, you'll be remembered. <laughs> and so you, like, like these waxworks, uh, statues. And so, so trying to, I guess, provide some incentive. And again, they're drawing from ancient traditions where, where statues were, were used in that way to kind of galvanize people around a political, around a political cause.
0: Right. Okay. Okay. So we've come kind of to the end of this story because we've gone through,
1: we've, we've, you know,
0: we're, we're, leaving and uh, you know, we're getting to the point where eventually these are destroyed and almost nothing remains. Right. Um, which is sad. I think um, inevitable, symbolic, I don't know what, what happens to these
1: things? Um, yeah. Like the, some of them do continue for like, they're almost in operation for, 300 years. So it's quite a long time. So they really were these very beloved civic institutions. Um, But then as Amsterdam expanded, some of them were destroyed then because Amsterdam expanded quite a lot in the 17th century and new canals were built. And some of these uh, sites, these inns were, you know, in the wrong spot. So they were demolished um, in the expansion of Amsterdam. So some already disappeared in the 17th century. Uh, the Out Dolhof was the one that lasted the longest. Um, and then it, it was sort of sold in the, I think the 1860s or so. Um, and at that point it was, it was demolished. Um, some of the statues were taken into the Amsterdam historical museum collection. Well, it was an early to the city hall actually, mm-hmm. and displayed there and then went to the Amsterdam historical museum later and some of them maybe were sold into private collections so we don't know what happened to them um and so very few of them seem to have uh survived i guess they also get old and decrepit and they sort of fall apart and they weren't restored Mm -hmm. um so the whole thing kind of fell into um into obsolescence, and people did seem that again. There was kind of publicity at this time. People did seem quite sad to see these sites go because they were seen as this kind of aspect of old Amsterdam of the past, um, and so there's a kind of nostalgia uh, about it too. But um, and and then they go into the the museum collections and eventually end up in the in the cafe, <laughs> yeah.
0: and then they just become a memory of something that we once experienced instead of a thing we're experiencing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right.
0: So your book goes a long way to restoring the story, the story to memory, perhaps reestablishing the wonders in our imagination, uh, definitely reinstating them in the scholarly story. So what is it like if there's only one thing that we as readers of the book, listeners of our podcast should take away about these moving statues? What's our what's our takeaway?
1: Ooh, what's our takeaway? I it's guess a question, isn't it? Yeah. it is about the power of art. I guess that um, in the seventeenth century, and I think that's still the case today. People really do understand how art can change people. That you can reach an audience. Um, the more. You can move an audience. The more you might be able to change their way of thinking, whether that's political or religious or social. Um, there's a there's a kind of power that is the kind of power of of art and of art exhibitions. So um, so yeah, art and the exhibition of art is still a really kind of powerful phenomenon. Um, So I guess that would be, that would be my takeaway.
0: (laughs) That's a wonderful takeaway. Let's keep that. Um, all right. Thank you so much. You've taken so much of your time. So we only have one more question left, which is what's next. What
1: are you working on? Oh, Oh, thanks for asking me that. Um, I'm working on a new book that is looking at 17th century Dutch art in relationship to the transatlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, there have been a lot of big exhibitions recently at the Rijksmuseum and the Rembrandt House, um, Maurits House, where we need to take into account anti-Black racism and how that actually has shaped the history of Dutch art, the way that we study Dutch art, the way that we understand it, the way that we exhibit it. Uh, And that's a story that strangely has not, you would think there's a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, of of awareness around this but there strangely is not a lot of art historical scholarship that really um, integrates that to really kind of think about how art and atrocity (laughs) and these horrific Mm -hmm. kind of brutal uh, colonial practices um, are really closely connected like the dutch golden age which i think we no longer call it that because um, there is a kind of growing awareness that the the prosperity that came from uh overseas trade was um, was mostly achieved through horrific violence exploitation enslavement not just of people in africa there was a lot of enslavement in um in Asia as well uh, by the Dutch. And so there's a whole kind of hidden history or secret history of Mm -hmm. of the 17th century that scholars are just really, you know, I mean, there's always been some scholarship on this, but Mm -hmm. to really make that central to the story that we tell about the 17th century about Dutch art, which, you know, is so much a part of almost any major museum collection has a pretty... Prominent mm-hmm. collection of Dutch art. So, how do we display that and tell the public this story uh, about about what the Golden Age, what was really going, what was really going on globally with with the Dutch in the 17th century? So, um, it's a that um, project, but an interesting one.
0: Yeah, it sounds fun. It sounds uh, really interesting. Probably not always fun, but, but.
1: no, 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 no. It's uh, you really have to think about uh the nature of evil and how people could treat other people uh and dispose of their lives um in such a callous way um for their own self-advancement is Mm -hmm. is pretty much what you what you get from this so yeah Mm. so
0: i mean that's kind of the story of Mm -hmm. humankind on some level right like we've a we've got a good history of um of earning our wealth um, at the expense
1: of others. That's right. So you can kind of see the relevance to today. Um, Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you you look at (laughs) where our consumer goods are coming from. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, this is
0: not a completed story by any means. Um, Interesting. Well, that's... Uh, that's absolutely necessary work and i'm really excited to see the outcome of that so great
1: yeah yeah, yeah sure we'll talk again we'll talk <laughs> again next
0: time all right once again thanks for taking time with me um and i wish you good good luck in the coming pursuits great thank you